All right, well, today I'd like to tell you a story about a perfect moment. Talking about a moment in history, there was a moment in history where everything all just worked out and all was right in the world for a fraction of time. You know, earth faded away a little bit, and it was more like being in heaven than being on earth. For once, it actually happened, and there was nothing to detract from it. I'd like to tell you that story, but I can't. I can't, but I will tell you a story about a moment that came close. Okay, so if you have your Bibles with you today, turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19, or you can follow on the screen behind me. We've got uh, a story in the scriptures we like to read. We're going to read the story of Jesus' triumphant entry, as it's known in the Christian circles, the event of his arrival in Jerusalem five days before his crucifixion. We, we uh, observe or remember this event every year in the church on Palm Sunday, one week before Easter, and so we'll be doing that today. Let's read the story together, starting in Luke chapter 19. It'll be starting at verse 28. It says this. This is just after Jesus had told a parable, and it says, After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. So here's your moment. Here's the moment. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of them. And in the other Gospels, it tells us this was a vast crowd of people that did this. They spread their garments out on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and to sing as they walked along, praising God for all of the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. And so as you can see, at first glance, this story of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem seems like it's a pretty awesome moment. This is the story we want to hear. In fact, we can see how this event almost qualifies as a perfect moment in history. It's almost as if God himself scripted this moment, this story into history to bring as much glory to himself as possible while still involving and even energizing those who are all around him that were participating. Heaven and earth were cooperating for once, working to the same ends. Perhaps he did just that. And so we have this story of triumph, the triumphant entry, and at the center of it is our hero, our hero Jesus, the Son of God. And although he's God, he has risked everything. He has given up the glorious privileges of heaven in order to walk the earth as a man, in order to bring God himself straight to our doorsteps. And although he brought the wisdom, the life, and the healing of heaven with him everywhere he went, he led a humble life, more often rejected than accepted, homeless, poor, 
particularly tragic in his life is the way the Jewish priests and leaders rejected him. For God had given the Jews hundreds of prophecies that predicted a Savior, a Messiah, would come. All of which pointed directly to Jesus. And yet the very people that should have welcomed him the most warmly were the ones who scoffed at him, the ones who despised him, and actually plotted to kill him. God had come to the earth, and even God's so-called chosen people could not recognize him. And so the story is set up. Jesus is the quiet hero, the one without recognition, without status, the one whom the prophets had predicted would literally save the world. And after 33 years of a quiet life, mostly misunderstood by others, he knew his moment had come. It was time. Jesus did not make a habit of making a big deal out of himself. In fact, the truth was quite the opposite. Earlier in his ministry, he even told people that figured it out. They figured out that he was the Messiah, the promised one who come. He told them to keep it under wraps. He intentionally evaded a crowd that intended to set him up as king. But today, today would be different. The timing was right. The location was right. It was only a handful of days prior to the Passover in Jerusalem, the most important time of the year and in the most important place of the Jewish faith. People from all over Israel were streaming into Jerusalem to be a part of this observance. And so Jesus sets his sights and his course on Jerusalem. The humble man, ready to take on the likes of the big city and the powers that be, He's heading straight into the center of the action, confronting faith and power head on. And yet there's a certain rebellion about him. There's a certain refusal to conform. Yes, he'll have his moments, but it won't be like anything you've seen before. Instead of riding in on a war horse or being pulled in a domineering chariot, he chooses a donkey as if to say he won't play the same game that most heroes play. And then upon his arrival, the earth erupts in praise. People pour into the streets and worship. Thousands come forward and they treat him like royalty. Coats are thrown off, laid in front of his path. Victory branches are waved and then added to the street in front of him. And the bad guys begin to get nervous. The proud religious authorities shout criticisms at Jesus and they murmur frightened words amongst themselves. But Jesus doesn't worry about that. This is his moment. He brushes them off with the confidence that both heaven and the crowds are on his side. In fact, he's even so bold as to claim that the stones along his path are at his mercy. That if it came right down to it, the stones would show that all creation is on the side of this humble man currently heading toward Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, for this brief event, people got it right. Not everyone. The scriptures do mention the detractors. But on the whole, people got it right. They recognized Jesus for who he really was. 
the Messiah, their coming Savior, the one who would fulfill all of the prophecies. They praised him, they worshipped him, they gave him honor, usually reserved for kings and for warriors who had defeated thousands of enemies. Although Jesus lived a lifetime fraught with rejection, this moment was different. The red carpet was truly rolled out for his arrival into Jerusalem. They pulled out all the stops for Jesus and they gave him what could appropriately be called the welcome of a lifetime. I almost feel like we should stop here for a moment in this service and just thank God that that moment happened. Thank God that maybe for one hour of Jesus' life here on earth, he was recognized and worshipped for who he really is. Thank God that it happened because maybe that means such things can happen. Maybe we can get it right from time to time. Thank God that it happened at least once before Jesus ascended to heaven. Because before he even got off the donkey, it was over. And when it was over, it was really over. It was almost as if that good, amazing, indescribably right thing that had just happened never happened. As the city of Jerusalem comes into view, the Bible says that Jesus began to weep over its fate. These were not tears of joy, but tears of anguish as his heart is cut deeply by the knowledge of Jerusalem's fate. He knows deep in his soul that even though there's a parade behind him, his ultimate rejection lies directly in front of him. Jerusalem will refuse him, and that will be their downfall. And through the tears, he pronounces judgment on them. It's in Luke 19, 42 through 44. He says this, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late. and Peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls. They will encircle you and close you in on every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. Some end of the party, huh? How ironic that the word Jerusalem means foundation of peace. And that the people streaming into Jerusalem have just finished shouting the words over and over again, peace in heaven. Jesus tells them peace is hidden from their eyes. And that this city of peace will be more familiar with destruction and defeat in the near future. So much for the joys and the glamour and the high spirits of the red carpet. And it gets worse. For his final stop of the day, Jesus heads for the temple. My guess is he probably had an awful feeling in his stomach as he approached it. He knew what he was going to find when he entered the temple. A few years back, he had walked into the temple grounds and found it looking a little bit more like a Walmart than a house of prayer and worship. 
The high priests and the temple workers had figured out how to quote-unquote make the space profitable. And they sold sacrifices at premium prices. They took advantage of the poor. They, they leased space for local merchants and put the surpluses into their own pockets. Meanwhile, what they weren't doing in the temple was praying, was offering any sort of meaningful worship experience or showing care for the poor and the foreigner. And so a couple of years prior, Jesus had cleared them all out in dramatic fashion. He'd overturned the tables of those selling their wares and changing money. He had driven the animals out with a whip. But before he even stepped inside the temple this second time, I think he knew what he was going to find. There it was again. Like it had never happened, that he had never cleared it. There was the marketplace, back up, strong as ever. In fact, the temple grounds were now being used as a thoroughfare through town. People would just cross through the temple courts simply because it was the most efficient way to get from point A to point B. And so it's interesting what the scriptures tell us about what Jesus did. It says, Jesus looked around at everything carefully, and then he went away for the night. And he came back the next day and cleared the temple out again, much like he had the first time. It's significant to note that he didn't just explode in anger at seeing such a sight. He went away from the night, and he probably prayed and wept some more and had anguish in his heart for what was about to happen. And then he came back the next day and did what needed to be done. And it gets worse. After he leaves the temple, Jesus is hungry and he approaches his fig tree in hopes of satisfying his hunger. Upon, ex upon examining it, he sees that it, like the entire nation of Israel, is fruitless. It's not serving its purpose. And so Jesus curses the tree and it dies within 24 hours. And it gets worse. <laughs> The stories that come next are not pleasant stories. They're not stories of worship. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell similar stories about what comes next. The first encounter Jesus has is with others of the religious leaders who have come to challenge his authority, basically claiming that Jesus is a fraud. And then the first parable that Jesus gets to tell upon his arrival into Jerusalem has to do with the terrible judgment that will fall on the religious authorities who have rejected the Messiah. Look in the book of John, the stories don't get better. The first conversation Jesus has after arriving in Jerusalem is predicting his own death. And it gets worse. Some of you may have put the pieces together by now and you're thinking, yeah, it was great and then it was bad. But we are speaking about two different groups of people here. We have the good people who met Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And then we have the bad people who were the religious authorities and the greedy merchants and the unbelieving Roman imperialists. Yes and no. Yes, there were different groups of people. Those that opposed Jesus outright, and then those that seemed to support him. But it's really not that easy. I mean, don't you wish the world could simply be divided into good people and bad people? It would be a whole lot simpler, perhaps. But, but I don't think it is that simple. And that's, that's why it gets worse. Because let me tell you about those good people. John twelve thirty seven. This is what it says. The same chapter as the story of triumphant entry, it says this, but despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. 
Those are the good people, <laughs> right? Okay, well, at least some did, though, right? I mean, out of the vast crowd that turned out for his arrival, surely they weren't all just along for the ride, right? Well, right. Actually, many people did believe in him. But let me tell you about what the Bible says about them. Just five verses later, okay? John 12, 42 and 43 says this. Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders. But they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Wow. So there were some believers, but they just had little to no backbone. Great. Ah, but we're not, we're not completely out of luck, right? His disciples. Jesus had 12 close friends who stuck with him through thick and thin. They weren't on the sidelines of the red carpet. They were actually walking down the carpet with him, right behind him. Sure, it was only 12 guys, but at least Jesus could count on them. One of Jesus' disciples betrayed him to his death. Another one denied him, denied even knowing him, three times in a single night. All but one of them were nowhere to be found in the moment of Jesus' darkest hour. Does anyone even remember the red carpet by this point? I mean, it doesn't seem, doesn't it seem a little bit pointless <laughs> to have this victorious arrival, this, this near-perfect experience, only to have it come crashing down with judgment and tragedy? One hour, maybe, of glory, followed by a week of weeping, of confrontation, of strain, of deep disappointment, of abandonment. Does this make sense to you? When I was preparing this message this week, I found myself asking God, why? Why would you set this up? How can I make sense of what happens here? Really? An hour of praising you as Lord, telling, telling Jesus he's our Savior and pledging, pledging devotion to him, followed by a week's worth of taking that all back? Was that really worth it to you? And I felt that God answered me. I felt that God answered my questioning with something that stung. When I asked God, why? Why would you honor this kind of worship? Why would you be a willing participant in it when you knew that it wouldn't last for more than just a handful of minutes? And instead of giving me the list of reasons, you know what he said to me? He just said, I do it all the time. I do it all the time. And as much as it pained me to make the connection, I saw it then. Jesus' triumphant entry, his red carpet welcome into Jerusalem was the first ever Sunday Christian worship service. It really was. 
It was people gathered around Jesus, praising him, honoring him with their lips, with their actions, with their resources. Everyone was welcome. People ran out and invited their friends. The whole thing was guided by and actually incorporated the use of scripture. It was a moment carved out in time intentionally to be in God's presence and to glorify him in unique ways that people would never have done on their own. And in a sense, in a sense, we relive these scenes, both the glory of them and the tragedy of them, week in and week out. Now, to tell you the truth, I don't know if I like that comparison I would rather think of us as somehow different than those people outside of Jerusalem that day. You know, because, yeah, they threw Jesus a nice welcome, but then they... And we wouldn't do that, would we? We would do better. We, we know who Jesus is now. I mean, they didn't really know. He hadn't risen from the dead yet. So it was easy for them, easier for them to abandon him than it is for us. We know now that he can live in our hearts and nope, nope, we do it. We do the same basic thing. We don't often bring donkeys into the church, not here anyway. But 2,000 years later, we still set up Sunday morning worship services as a red carpet experience. And that's good. It's not a bad thing. We do it. God is at the center. The crowds are welcome. The agenda is intentional. We'll sing praises. We'll be guided by scripture. We'll give of ourselves. We'll give of our resources to honor our king and our savior. Every week we roll out the red carpet and we offer our best up to God. And every week by about 12, 20 or so, our red carpet experience ends. And from that point forward, if Jesus is to be praised, if Jesus is to be honored or worshipped any further in our lives, it is going to be in the city. It is going to be in homes or in workplaces, in day-to-day -day relationships. It won't be on the red carpet, though. It would have to happen somewhere else. So what do we make of this? This message, this comparison that at least, at least I don't really like. <laughs> I don't like it. It's tough. It's challenging. I mean, I've gotten used to appreciating Christ's suffering around Easter time, around Good Friday. It's something we focus on every year. And we, we think about what Christ suffered for us. And I'm used to thinking about that at this time of year. It's an important part of understanding his love for us. But for him to come back to me and say, I do this every week. I suffer, I weep every week when the red carpet is rolled up. I'm not comfortable with that. And I really don't think I should be. So I've got four quick points to share with you this morning that I think we can take away from the story. Because I do think we can take something redemptive away from this. God never leaves us without hope. And even in the midst of such a difficult revelation, I believe God wants to do something good in us. I think the story of the triumphant entry and its aftermath gives us a great chance to learn some things about God's intentions for the red carpet experience. 
So I've got four points for you, but before I even get into those, I just want to clarify what I mean when I say the words red carpet, because I'm going to say them a hundred more times. Um, When I'm talking about the red carpet, I'm talking about these corporate worship gatherings, when we come together to welcome God's presence in a unique way. I'm talking about the triumphant entry. I'm talking about Sunday worship services at church, okay? Those times when we use all means appropriate and available to welcome and honor God in our midst. So I would be really saddened to hear if someone, you know, came to this service, went home and said, I was really disappointed. And I went to church and the pastor just talked about flooring options the whole time. Okay? Not talking about that. All right, so four things that I think we should learn. Some positive things we should take away from this. Things about how God views the red carpet experience. Number one, first of all, the red carpet was God's idea. I think there's a cynical tendency out there in many people, Christians, non-Christians alike, to reject the corporate worship experience because of the very fact that, well, let's just say it, a lot of Christians are hypocrites. No one in this room, however. But seriously, though, we see that as a hypocritical experience, and so therefore it must not mean very much. It must really be a fake thing And seriously, though, I will admit it. Even as I am studying this passage this week, trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to say about this? I had some of these cynical types of thoughts answering me as I was reading this passage. I read about the the wonderful events of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem and and how about pretty much everyone rejected and abandoned him immediately afterwards. And I thought to myself, God, why bother? Why even bother You received this worship, and then the people just took it all away. People, why did you bother? You worshiped God for a few minutes and then went about your merry business as if nothing in your life of any importance had actually happened. As if you hadn't been in the presence of the long-awaited Savior. Now, there are some valid critiques to be made here. But the point here is this. If we're asking the question, why bother? We're off the mark. Why bother? Why bother? Because the red carpet was God's idea. And in the midst of it, he affirmed that it was good. It's quite interesting to note that Jesus actually set up his own triumphant entry. He chose the timing. He chose the place. He asked his disciples to bring him the donkey. He knew what was going on and his disciples probably didn't. He set it all up, and he did it all expressly to fulfill a prophecy, to show publicly that he indeed was the Messiah, that he was worthy of this kind of worship. And so we need to know, we need to know that if we reject the corporate worship experience, we're not giving up on some fake idea that people came up with. We're giving up on one of God's ideas. Number two, it's easy to honor God at the red carpet. Now, as much as we might talk the experience up and say it's a great experience, it's good, it's God's thing, we also need to realize that the whole worship experience is set up so that it is easy to honor God. The plan is set for everyone. Songs are chosen well ahead of time. Lyrics already are carefully chosen to reflect biblical truths and praise. The spoken words that people give have been prayerfully considered in advance.
In short, people have already done a lot of hard work ahead of time so that by the time the red carpet is rolled out, it's easy to welcome God's presence and to honor him. Remember back to the story outside of Jerusalem. A large crowd just showed up. They just showed up and they sang and waved branches. They weren't prepared in advance. This was no sophisticated production on their part. And yet there was still probably nowhere better in the entire world for them to be. Now, why does this idea matter to us? Why am I talking to you about how easy this is? I mean, because it's easy to honor God, does that mean that it's not a very deep experience? Are we taking the easy road, so to speak? Should we be looking for more difficult ways to honor God? More noble ways? No to all of those questions. No. Difficult ways of honoring God will come frequently enough without even looking. You'll probably have several more today before the day is out, okay? But the reason I bring this point up is that it means that we should view every red carpet experience as a gift. It is a good thing. We are so fortunate to gather with one another and experience the presence of God together. It is a joy and a grace that we have available to us, an almost perfect moment that we can experience, perhaps even on a regular basis. It will rarely, if ever, be easier than these moments to align with God, to walk closely with Him, to hear from Him, to experience Him, and we should be grateful for every one of these opportunities. Now, point number three brings us back down to earth, though. Because we need to realize the very real truth that all red carpets come to an end. It's true. You know it, and I know it. I mean, the Bible doesn't specifically mention this detail, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus returned that donkey he borrowed. He knew he would not be riding it for the rest of his life with an endless sea of cheering people. In fact, the one brief event that he had there was really the only red carpet experience Jesus had in 33 years of time on this earth. By their design, every worship gathering on earth is a temporary arrangement in time. And if that is true, then the obvious conclusion is that most of life is lived where the red carpet ends. Most of our opportunity to worship and honor God happens outside the church, where it's not always so easy to do. Most of our opportunity to know God deeply happens away from here. Most of our opportunity to experience God happens in other places. Yet, where do we most worship and honor God? Where do we most seek to know him deeply? Where do we experience him the most? Too often the answer is at church, the place where it's easiest. In fact, if there were no such thing as church worship services, I shudder to think at what would happen to the faith of so many Christians around the world. Because this is all they have. But all red carpets come to an end. They're designed to. They were never meant to be all someone 
has. Never. Which brings us to point four. The red carpet was never designed to be a standalone experience. Okay, so let's break out of our paradigm that we've been talking about for a minute here. And let's consider just other types of red carpets, the types you're familiar with. You know, the ones you see at high-end events, the ones you see on television. All red carpets lead somewhere, don't they? (laughs) When the president welcomes foreign dignitaries to a, a state banquet and welcomes them on the red carpet, but is it the banquet or the welcome that's more important? Of course, it's the banquet. Without the banquet, there would be no red carpet. Likewise, when Hollywood producers stage these elaborate movie premieres with a hyped-up red carpet experience, and they invite the media out and everything, tell me what they would rather have. Would they rather have millions of people streaming from all over the country come and stand along the side of the red carpet? Or would they rather have millions of people from all over the country see the movie in the theaters? That's being premiered. They want you to see the movie. They want you to see the movie because without that, there would be no red carpet. And so with any carpet, with any red carpet, the end of the red carpet, where it leads is a much bigger purpose than the carpet itself. The carpet experience is there to serve something beyond itself. And so it is with us. When Jesus picked a time, a place, and a donkey, and he set up his triumphant entry, the purpose was much larger than this one-time event. The event itself was good. The carpet was God's idea. Remember? It was right. Almost a perfect moment, you might say. That event helped people to get it right. It helped people to get that he was indeed the Messiah, that he was the one worthy of their praise. It helped people to focus in just the right way. But listen to the words of Jesus recorded in the book of John just after this event had ended. Moments later, John 12, 26, Jesus says this. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me. Because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. How interesting, huh? The red carpet experience has just ended. The crowds have dispersed and there's just a handful of people left around Jesus. And so now what? Now Jesus makes a comment about what it really takes. You want to really honor Jesus? You want to serve him the way God intended? The triumphant entry was nice. And it was a gift to both Jesus and the crowds. But here's the deal. Jesus' servants must be where Jesus is. And when he says this, he's not on the red carpet anymore. That's in the past. Who is willing to be where Jesus is when the music dies down and the crowds go away and there's not the encouragement and the the great feeling? How about when there's opposition, when there's difficulty, when there's sacrifice that needs to be made? Who's willing to be with Jesus then? Who is willing to be with Jesus when he tells them that there's only one way this is going to work, buddy? And that's when Jesus takes the lead and you follow. If the red carpet doesn't lead us to following Jesus in the rest of our lives, we've missed the point entirely. We've squandered the holy gift 
rather than investing it. And so for us, this message comes at a particularly poignant time. I mean, it's hard to believe, but this is the last Sunday morning worship service we have until July. I hope that's not a shock to everyone. We've been trying to communicate that, really have. But don't get me wrong, we're not giving up on worship. We're not giving up on worship in any way. We'll still be doing some worship services on Wednesday nights during May and June. On Sundays, we will certainly still be worshiping God in a very important way. We'll be sharing the gospel with everyone who comes here in a culturally relevant way. That is worship. And what higher form of worship could there be than to bring others to Christ? But our experience won't be the same. It won't be like the red carpet experience that that you may have come to know and love. The red carpet is coming to an end. It does that every week. Every Sunday, the red carpet comes to an end. But now it's coming to an end, not just for today, but for a little season. And what does that mean for your faith? Is that a catastrophe for you? Are we taking away one of the only things that you have going for you? Or... And we end this on a good note. Will you accept the challenge to take your faith beyond these walls on a regular basis? Will you give yourself more fully to the reason that we have this red carpet experience in the first place? So that it can honestly be said of you that you are his servant. And the Father honors all who serve him. Will it honestly be said of you that you are one who strives to be where Jesus is well after the red carpet ends.